There we go. Okay, uh, we have been, if you've been with us thus far, or if this is your first time to RUF, we have been looking at the storyline of the Bible. We've been, we've been arguing every week that the Bible itself is a story, it's a narrative, and it's composed in four basic acts, four, dif- four basic chapters. first chapter was creation, the second one is the fall, then redemption, and then finally consummation, the consummation. And so uh, we've, been, we've already talked about creation. We've been talking about the fall, what it means that there is sin in the world, what it means that uh, we ourselves are um, sinful, what it means to live in a sinful place, a place that is ruined and damaged by this thing called sin. And so what we are going to look at tonight is, is what it looks like to be a part of a world that is deeply entrenched and deeply ruined with sin. And to do that, I picked one of probably the top five uh, most horrific passages in the Bible. And the reason I did that is because I want you to see how honest the Bible is about how horrific sin itself is. I want you to uh, see how it's presented, and I want it to be unsettling. It should be. And so we're just going to kind of sit in this passage tonight and, and be unsettled by sin itself and its effect on us. Because there's, there's two categories that we have to have in our minds and have in our hearts. And those categories is that because we live in a sinful world, we are both... Uh, we sin against others and other people sin against us. We are both at the same time uh, villains and victims. We hurt others and other people hurt us. That's just the part of being a part of a world that is ruined and damaged by sin. So we're going to look at this passage and um, I'll just give you a disclaimer up front uh, that it's pretty, it's pretty graphic. This is a pretty shocking uh, awful passage, and so here we go. Verse one. This is Second Samuel thirteen. If you didn't, if you don't have a sheet, um, but here we are. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. I'll just stop right there and explain. Just, I know it's easy to get lost in Old Testament names. Uh, there's basically three characters in this story. You have uh, Amnon and Tamar, and they are uh, both children of King David. This is during the reign of King David, and so they are uh, both children of him, but they have different mothers. So they're half-brother, half-sister. So you have Amnon and Tamar, and Amnon, the guy, falls in love with Tamar. So we'll pick it up in verse 2. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. 
And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar in the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. And then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. And he called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I feel um, inadequate to be able to address something this horrific, this explosive. I pray that you would give uh, me grace in these next few minutes. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and uh, be able to unpack and clarify this passage in a way that uh, makes the gospel sweet and good news to our ears. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and open up our own ears and our own eyes so that we may see beautiful King Jesus himself. I pray that the gospel would be so good that it would comfort the afflicted and at the same time afflict the comfortable. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a awful, horrific story. And it's obviously revolving around this guy named Amnon, who is the son of King David, who is ruling at the time. And uh, I want you to see that the Bible does not sugarcoat sin, does not sugarcoat the atrocities of this world, but it is extremely honest with how messy and hurtful and broken the world is and how messy and broken our own hearts are. And so I just want to look at three things in this passage tonight. I want to look at the heart of the villain. Then I want to look at the hurt 
of the victim. And then finally, the hope for them both. So the heart, the hurt, and the hope. So first, the heart of the villain, Amnon. He's got a big problem because he is infatuated. He is obsessed with his half-sister Tamar. And he's got a problem because the, the law, the Levitical law, one, requires unmarried virgins to retain their virginity until they are married, and it prohibits the marriage of anyone this closely related. And so he's got a problem. There's nothing he can do about this obsession that he has cultivated in his heart. Let's read uh, verse 2 again. It says, Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. He obsesses over her from a distance, and he's cultivating this lust and this passion. And I want you to see how utterly self-centered and selfish this passion is. He's not interested in a commitment to her. He's not interested in serving her. He's not interested in laying his life down for her. I mean, even look at how it's, how it's worded in verse 2. It's, he's frustrated because it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her, not for her. He just wants to do something to her. He is, he is uh, rattled to the court with an obsession and with a lust for nothing but gratifying his own desires. All he wants is sex. All he wants is her body. That's all he's thinking about. He does not want to love her. He wants to use her. And so as the story develops, him and Jonadab develop this plan where, you know, he's going to pretend like he's sick, bring her in, and once she's in, in a vulnerable, quiet, secret place, he'll overpower her and get what he wants. And he does. It's horrific. But I want you to see that the heart of the villain is driven by a selfish desire to consume other people to gratify their own desires. To say it again, the heart of the villain is the desire to want to consume other people selfishly so that your desires, your own uh, needs and fulfillments, or, or your own needs get fulfilled. The desire to consume other people. And I want you to see that we do this as well. We are just as much of a villain in the sense that we possess the same sort of heart to want to consume other people. Think about this. This is why when you walk into a room, some of you rule out 95% of the room of people for potential friends or potential boyfriends or girlfriends simply on looks alone. You just walk into a room and immediately rule out 95% of the room. And, And why do we do that? It exposes something in our heart, right? It exposes something that, okay, we want what we want. And the thing that we want is based purely off of appearance, purely off of looks. And so I want to consume, I want to uh, get what I want, and these are the kind of people that I want to get. Or it's the same reason why, if you think about why you would uh, mess around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or just randomly hook up on campus, right? Uh, This is the most selfish thing you can do. This is not love. To uh, You are just using the other person, using the other person's body to get pleasure, to get what you want to get. There's nothing uh, loving or selfless or biblical about that. And, and, and what it does is it sets you up later in marriage for failure, for horrific, monstrous problems, because you're training yourselves now in college to make sex all about you. 
Fulfilling your desires, fulfilling your needs. But sex, biblically, in the context of marriage, is putting aside your interests, putting aside your desires for the fulfillment of the other person's interests and desires. So you're just training yourself now to consume, not to serve. And the thing is, is that we, we all have to repent of the way that we consume people. Because we do. Guys... You have to repent of the way that you string along girls' emotions and the way that you interact with them, the way that you befriend them, and the way that you basically treat them like your girlfriend when they're not. Because what you are doing in that moment is, is using them to, to get the fulfillment that you want from this other person. And when you realize, okay, the cost-benefit analysis is not working out for me anymore, you peace out. And they're left crushed and devastated in the wake of your consuming them. Girls, you have to repent in the way that you interact with guys, the the way that you choose to wear what it is that you like to wear. And I know part of what the reason that you wear what you wear is to, uh, in a strange way that I'm learning in the context of marriage, is also for other girls. But there's there's an element (laughs) that you dress up in a certain way to get the attraction from guys, to get them to look at you in a certain way because it makes you feel good. And there's something... There's something dignifying about feeling good about yourself and feeling beautiful. There's a fine line where you often cross and say, okay, I'm going to wear something that's a bit more revealing, something a bit more suggestive, and get the look that I want. Even though it's degrading, I'm going to get his attention. And in that moment, you are consuming his lust. You are consuming his feelings, the way that you're just using him and his looks to feel good about yourself. We all, all of us are consuming each other in some ways. And the question is how? how? How are you using people? In what ways are you using and consuming people for? Is it using people for their, uh, for their money, for their car, for their clothes? Are you using them for their reputation just so that you can be seen with them, so that you can walk into a room and be identified with them? Are you using them for their, for their body? What is it? We all uh, consume people in some ways. And therefore, I want you to see that we possess the same heart as Amnon here. It may not manifest itself in the same sort of ways, the same sort of flagrant, horrific ways that it did with this story, but the same heart, the same raw matter is still there to want to consume, to use other people so that we get our needs met. But I want to look back at the story real quick because... um, It's really interesting. Verse 14 and 15. After he... um, Well, I'll just read it. Verse 14. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. How do we explain this shift that happened in his heart? Because he, it looked like he loved her. He was obsessing over her. He was, he was just uh, thinking about her nonstop. He got what he wanted. And, and moments later, once the passion had subsided, he hated her. And he threw her out. Why does he do this? Well, if you think about the psychology behind a sexual violator like this, they want their feelings to be reciprocated. They want this person to love them, to, to respond back to them. 
And they know that they're not going to get that. So what they do is they manipulate and force and use their strength to overpower the other person and get what they want. And when the passion has gone away, they're left with the reminder that this person has not willingly consented. This person uh, has rejected me. And you're left feeling rejected and humiliated and filled with shame and filled with uh, regret and filled with guilt. And And you're just left with that reminder. This person does not love me. I just completely consumed and destroyed them. Do you feel uh, the guilt? Do you feel the shame? Are you struggling with that? Are you feeling that uh, right now in this, in this context? These may be indicators that you are consuming people in sinful ways. Because our hearts are the same way as Amnon's. Our hearts are driven to consume other people instead of serve them and love them. That's the heart of the villain. I want to look now at the hurt of the victim. The hurt of the victim. Uh, I want you to think about four things with me. First, I want you to think about what she is doing. Here's Tamar. She's brought in by her father to care for this person who is sick. Out of complete charity and compassion, she goes in to help this guy. She's totally uh, not suspecting this. And in that moment of her complete vulnerability, complete act of charity, she is being uh, taken advantage of for the person that she's trying to help. I'm trying to help this person. This is what she is doing. But think about next what she actually does. Verse 12 and 13. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where, where could I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king and he will not keep me from being married to you. She's just arguing, reasoning with him, trying, resisting as hard as she can. Get me out of the situation. She's resisting, she's trying, she's fighting, and she can't. He's stronger than her. He forces himself upon her and uh, overpowers her. And think about what is done to her. Number three. This is an inside affair. This is her family. This is someone that she uh, trusted. And no one comes to her aid. No one comes to help her. In fact, after this horrific thing, she is treated as if she is the one that did something wrong. In verse 16 and 18, he kicks her out the door, slams the door behind her, and bolts it, treating her, the victim, as if she was the one that did something wrong. Blame the victim mentality. Thrown out onto the street, completely desecrated, completely degraded. Some of you have experienced this type of sexual violation, this type of sexual abuse, and you have to hear the Bible scream as loud as it can that it is not your fault. Because I know when, when, when your mind tries to go into the place of saying, well, maybe it was my fault. I shouldn't have been there. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or maybe somewhere in me, I knew that I deserved this. And you have to hear the Bible say, no, I, you do not deserve this. You do not deserve to be treated this way. You are a victim. One of the horrific and sad results of living in a sinful world is that we are exposed and vulnerable to unbelievable pain. That's just a result of the fall. And some of you have gone through unimaginable pain. And you have to hear the Bible say, it is not your fault. 
We live in a damaged world. We live in a world where we are uh, both sinners, where we sin against other people, and other people sin against us. We have to have this category in our mind. Otherwise, we will, we will be repenting for things that we need not. We will be repenting and saying, I deserve this somehow. And the Bible says, no, you didn't. You were abused. You were mistreated. Fourth and finally, I want you to think about what she has to deal with. After she is kicked out, of the uh, out of the room. Read verse 19 with me. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. She she first tears this robe, which which was the signifying uh, uh, the virgin robe, and so she rips it, signifying. Uh, I, My virginity has been taken. I am now in some ways damaged goods, ripped. And in fact, this moment, she is actually disqualified from participating in any of the royal marriages. She was, you know, a son, a a daughter of the king and so would have been married royally. And now she is uh, no longer having that option. And then she puts ashes on her head, which was the, the cultural custom of the time to just demonstrate grief and shock and humiliation and sadness. And so you see what is going on on the outside is simply a reflection of what she's feeling on the inside. She's ripping her robe, putting dirt on her head, signifying, I am ripped, my soul is ripped to pieces, and I am dirty. I am unclean. And in her moment of distress, one of her brothers, her natural brother Absalom, comes up, and here's what he says in verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Keep it quiet. Don't say anything about it. Don't think about it. Don't reflect on it. Don't take it to heart. And then it says that he brought her into her house, and she lived with him, her brother now. And it says that she lived with him a desolate woman. The word desolate Biblically, it's used after sort of a natural uh, uh, plague or something would just sort of wipe out a land and, and, and leave the land just totally barren and totally uh, destroyed and, and uh, wasted. That's the word. Totally just wasted. Desolate woman. And, and I didn't include this in the passage, but verse 23 picks up this way. Two years later, and then the story continues, meaning she is sitting there living with her brother, keeping it under wraps, left to sit with the, with the loneliness, the confusion, the anger, the wounds for two years while nobody does anything, nobody says anything, and she's just left to reflect on this awful thing that just happened to her. My wife Catherine and I know this uh, uh, person, a good friend of ours, um, that when she was a young teenager, she was... Uh, sexually molested by her brother-in-law. And her, her parents actually walked by during one of these episodes and didn't say anything about it. And so, uh, and, and still to this day, I mean, she's in her mid to late 20s now, to this day, her parents refuse to admit that anything happened, even though they walked by and they witnessed it. Because if they admit that something happened, they have to now admit to their negligence, their failure as parents to do anything about this. They have to own their responsibility and their sin in this. It's too shameful, so they don't. And so they deny it. 
And our friend, the meantime, years and years and years goes by, where she's left thinking, am I crazy? Did this actually happen or did I make it up? Did, 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 I, did this really happen or not? Maybe I am crazy, but why in the world then do I have all of these wounds? Why do I have these awful memories? Denial. And she, is, she was told, just like Absalom told her sister, you know, keep it quiet. Don't say anything about this. Don't bring it up. Don't deal with this. And so she's left to just reflect and deal with it on her own, the abuse that she has undergone. I know that at some level, all of us in this room are victims. Maybe not of sexual abuse, but maybe of physical abuse, where a parent or a boyfriend or somebody physically hit you. Maybe of psychological or emotional abuse when you were told by an authority or by an parent that you would amount to nothing, that you are trash, something like that, some sort of emotional abuse. Maybe even spiritual abuse where you were forced into believing or into behaving in a certain way that was inconsistent with where your heart was at the time. And so what do we do if at some level all of us have wounds, deep, hurtful wounds? What do we do? Because how our heart responds is crucial. How our heart responds to this is utterly utterly crucial because if you refuse to go there, if you refuse to acknowledge it, if you refuse to process it with a pastor or with a counselor or with a close friend, then your heart will actually uh, be more damaged as a result. If you think about when you break an arm, if it is reset improperly, it will heal and it will... It will fuse together, but it will heal uh, improperly. And the same thing can happen to our hearts if we do not deal with them. They will heal improperly, and we will uh, grow cold and shut off from other people. We will grow cynical and suspicious of other people. And we will put up barriers, and we will put up walls and say, nobody gets in because I'm never going to be hurt like that again. And it makes us hard and uh, guarded for the rest of our lives. And the first thing that we have to do so that we do not turn into these types of people, is to acknowledge it and to face it and to mourn it, to hate it, to cry out to God in prayer and say, I hate that this happened. And I know some of you are going to say, Matt, when I don't think about it, I feel okay. When I think about it, I'm confused and angry and hurt. Why in the world would I want to go back there? And I want to suggest to you, I know it's counterintuitive, but you have to. You have to return there, process it with friends, process it with uh, pastors, with counselors, and be able to get healing in those places. And the first step is to mourn it and to acknowledge it and to process it. That is the hurt of the victim. But what about the hope? Is there any hope in this story? Is there any redemption whatsoever for these two people? So let's look at it, the hope for both of them. All of First and Second Samuel, it's about David. He is the central character with which both of these books revolve around. And, and he is in this story. He is still, in some ways, the main character of this story. He's still the king, and so all eyes are on him to see what he's going to do. How is he going to respond to this? All eyes are fixed on David. David, what are you going to do as the king? Here it is in verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Rightly so. His emotion is appropriate. He should be angry. He should be upset for what has happened. This was an unjust atrocity. 
He is responding emotionally, but what does he do? What does he do about it? Nothing. He does nothing. Why does he do nothing? Two chapters before this, in 2 Samuel 11, David himself spots a woman from a distance. Her name is Bathsheba. He develops a sexual obsession over her, pursues it, has sex with her, gets her pregnant, and then kills her husband to cover it all up. The reason why he doesn't do anything in this story is because he is basically guilty of the same crime. And if he punishes his son, that means legally he should be punished just as well, right? And so he is uh, not going to enforce justice, and so he does nothing. He lets it slide. As the story develops, Amnon himself, or Absalom chases down Amnon later on in this chapter and ends up uh, retaliating. But David himself does nothing. And you are left there longing for somebody to step in and fix this. All these years are going by and David is doing nothing. What you ache for in this story and what you ache for in your own stories is for a better king, a better David. Somebody who is both in charge, but who is blameless and who has the integrity to go after sin and call it what it is and punish it. Uh, Somebody who is committed to justice. Somebody who is committed to making all of the wrongs right. We need a better David. And the good news is, is that we have one. The good news is that we have a better David who is both in charge and who is blameless. Because as the story of the Bible develops, it gets even more shocking in the sense that the king himself, out of jaw-dropping grace, does not punish the villains, but actually punishes his own son. David did not punish his son because he himself was sinful. And what do we see God doing? We see God willingly punishing his son who is perfectly sinless. God's solution for the brokenness of this world is the cross. The cross is the hope for both the villain and the victim. Let me explain how this works. For the villain... For you and me as contributors into the mess of the world, the cross is our only hope because Jesus has taken the punishment that you and I deserve. And if we repent and believe the gospel, God himself adopts us into his royal family as sons and daughters without guilt, without punishment, without condemnation, because Jesus himself stood condemned in our Place. He received all of the condemnation so that we who deserve the punishment can say there is therefore no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. What is happening on the cross? Jesus himself is being consumed with the wrath of God so that you and me who are consumers of other people can be set free. Isaiah 53 verse 5 and 6 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
You remember the, the gospel stories as Jesus is going through the trial right before his execution on the cross. Uh, he's right before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate brings up this guy named Barabbas. You remember this? And the crowds say, uh, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. Well, who is Barabbas? He was a criminal. He was on death row. He was somebody who not just consumed other people's sexuality, he consumed other people's lives. says he was a murderer. He snuffed out other people's lives. And to set up what is about to happen at the cross spiritually, Jesus trades places with him. So Jesus receives all of the condemnation that Barabbas deserved. And Barabbas receives all of the credit of a perfect life and is set free. Jesus gets all of the uh, blame for criminals like you and me on the cross. So that criminals like you and me get all of the credit for what Jesus has done. The cross is our only hope for pardon, for forgiveness, for restoration. For people like you and me who consume others. But that's for the villain. What about for the victim? The cross is the hope for the victim as well. Because what do we see happening to Jesus at the cross? He is suffering insults and betrayal and abuse when he didn't deserve it. He is perfectly righteous. This is an act of utter cosmic injustice. In all four gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get this little detail where the soldiers are gambling for Jesus' garments at the foot of the cross. Why is that detail in there? Why is that weird little detail thrown in all four gospel accounts? At some level, Jesus is most likely stripped naked as he's hung on the cross, vulnerable, exposed. And so in some level, he's enduring sexual mockery where people are seeing him exposed to where he is and they are trampling on him, insulting him, and his closest friends and his family treats him like trash and throws him out. And he is undergoing it all. He is taking all of the shame, all of the uh, messiness and dirtiness that we feel on himself so that in a moment of profound grace, he identifies with the most horrific suffering and abuse. Isaiah 53 again, verse 3. Just like Tamar, who was rejected and despised and mistreated, what does it say about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 3? It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. How does the cross provide hope for the victim? There's this great passage in Zechariah 3 where it, it talks about how the high priest was brought into the courtroom of God by Satan himself. And the high priest is covered in these uh, ripped and defiled clothes, basically to say, just like, just like Tamar, he's defiled and dirty. And what does God do? He takes those dirty garments, removes them, and puts clean, bleached white garments on this defiled person. At the cross, Jesus is taking all of the shame, all of the abuse, all of the suffering, all of the dirtiness, so that he can turn around and give you cleanliness and healing and restoration and make you more glorious than you could have ever imagined. Why is Jesus, throughout the gospel stories, constantly hanging around with sexually broken people, with prostitutes, with women who have cheated on their husbands, with sex addicts? How is he treating these people? with unbelievable tenderness and gentleness and understanding. 
He is committed to restoring them, committing to making them clean, committing to sanctifying them and making them more glorious than they could have ever thought would be possible for them. Let me close with this. One day, our King will set everything right. One day, all of the wrongs in this world will be rectified. Justice will happen. He will either punish the people who are not in His Son, or He will count those people's uh, sin as having already been paid for and punished because He has punished His Son. There is no other way. He will either punish us for our crimes, or if we identify ourselves with Jesus, He counts what Jesus has done as punishment, and He adopts us into His family. But one day, He will make everything right. Justice will reign. And so you can trust, you can hope that, okay, right now our God does not sit on His hands and wait. Our God does not wait and just sit back and let the abuse happen. He actually does something about it. He will fix the world and He will bring in justice and He will make all of the wrongs right and He will usher in a kingdom where there is no more pain, no more abuse. But it all flows back to the cross where He inaugurated and initiated this whole redemptive restoration project. Jesus is a multifaceted Savior. He rescues victims and He rescues villains from the vandalism of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Son who is our Savior, who is our King, who is blameless. And in His love and in His mercy, He comes and repairs our wounds and understands the pain that we go through, understands the suffering, understands our own guilt by identifying with us on the cross. Father, I pray that King Jesus would be sweet to our souls. Pray that we would flee to Him, throw ourselves into His arms and find the understanding and the peace and the love that we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm? Hey, I'm Catherine, um, and I just wanted to have met y'all.